I grew to know how to love failure in improv. Everyone has to fail at least once or they haven't tried something wow. new. They haven't pushed themselves, you know. We embraced failure and it took me quite a while to be able to get there with writing. And that's what I, I wanted to feel as at home in writing as I did at improv. I, I'm not afraid to fail in the moment because I trust myself that I'll pick up the next moment. are listening to the Act One Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, James Duke. Just a reminder that if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a good review. Our guest today is screenwriter Claire Sarah. Claire is a very funny and talented writer. She's co-written several films, including Blended with Adam Sandler and Drew Barrymore, and the Warner Brothers animated film, Smallfoot. Claire is a wonderful person. We laugh a lot in the podcast and have a really good conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Claire, Sarah, it's so good to see you. Welcome. Thank you, Jimmy Duke. It is a pleasure and a flattering to be here. I want everyone to know that the truth, I want, I want everyone to know the truth, Claire. The truth is you were actually probably going to be my very first guest on the Act One podcast. And I had a fantastic conversation with you and we laughed we and, did. We, and, and we cried. I did. We, <laughs> <laughs> I think we might've uh, solved world hunger. I mean, it was like, yeah, a lot was accomplished. Yeah. And between then and now um, the audio disintegrated. I don't know what happened. COVID. Co- <laughs> COVID. <laughs> As I was saying to you earlier, before we started recording it, I would listen to the audio, the playback, and it sounded like both of us were inebriated. <laughs> now I want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, Trump. Anyway, so you have graciously agreed to come back on and I really appreciate it because honest to goodness, um, I just love having, I just love talking with you. So thank you so much for coming back. Um, how are you doing? Like, uh, give us an update on, on, on how, how you're doing these days with, uh, with everything going on in the world. I, I know that, um, you've been, you've been staying busy. You, you, you last time we talked, you, you, you know, you've been taking a couple of meetings and stuff, but how are things? Yeah, well, you know, things are mixed because we are in a crazy pandemic year. Um, the hurtful stuff, the, the hardest is, uh, I'm, from Canada and my family is all in Canada. And I, I never realized how easy it was to hop up there whenever I needed family hugs and not being able to do that has honestly been the hardest part of this for me, which that alone is a blessing to say that's been the hardest part, you know? Um, so uh, I've been like really busy. I had started kind of two to three gigs right when the pandemic hit. And as a writer, you know, we write from home anyway, and Zoom meetings, uh, they're not ideal, but they are passable for uh, brainstorming and development. So I have been very busy uh, over the whole past year. I um, am developing an animated feature. Um, it's, it's a spec thing that um, myself and a couple of producers um, and a songwriter um, are doing together. 
Um, so it's, it's a beautiful project. So it's nice to get lost in, in that world. Um, I am working with, I'm starting a, this is a whole other conversation, but I have partnered with a fellow in Ireland to start a family uh, film company in Ireland. Wow. Yeah. And we got funding for our first film. It's live action. Um, so we have been rewriting, 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 and we brought on uh, our director in the fall. So we've been rewriting with the director and hoping to shoot um, uh, late spring this year. Congratulations. So, That's very thank cool. You. Thanks. Yeah. You, will, will it be shot in Ireland? Yes. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. Do they offer good, um, good uh, tax breaks and incentives there? That's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. They very really cool. Do. It's great. Do you need a do Do you need a uh, a PA like a forty four year old PA? To... I'm I'm looking to see if there are any white men that I could use on this <laughs> <laughs> because you know Ireland's so diverse. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Um, do, by the way, do you you were talking about your family in Canada, and I and I agree with you. That is, you know, my oh. family's in Tennessee, and that. I think for many of us, um, uh, that, that's been one of the biggest challenges. Uh, do you come from a, I come from a, I come from a pretty big family. Are, do you come from a pretty big family or is you, cause you grew up in Canada. That's where you were born and raised, correct? Well, I was actually born in Scotland, which is part of how I ended up oh, okay. back in Ireland. But, um, I was born in Scotland and then my parents moved to Canada, um, when I was a kid. I have two brothers and they're both married and with kids. And I, since my husband and I never had kids, um, I made their kids, my kids. Right. Um, so that's that. And I, that's what I really, I really miss that energy in my yeah. life. Um, but yeah, so not a huge family, but two brothers. Do you miss Canada? Oh, well, ask me that last month. <laughs> <laughs> about when it was really sunny here in LA uh, last week um, <laughs> and you were seeing the pictures of it probably being like 20 below in Canada. Did you miss Canada then? You know, I, and the thing is I'm from Vancouver. It's pretty mild, you know, it's pretty temperate there. Um, I, you know, I, I do have this kind of unique perspective in that I was born in Scotland and we had a really strong connection to Scotland all through my childhood would go back there, kept in touch with my cousins. Um, then, you know, I grew up with the Canadian sensibility, which is not that far off of Scotland, you know, um, and then I moved to the States, which is a, a different culture in, in some ways, and I became a, an American citizen. So I have three passports. I feel very James Bondy. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like it, it stops me from ever being too patriotic towards any one nation. Like, I love them all, and I see all their flaws. Yeah. But if one goes, but if one goes rogue, you know, I got, I got two more. <laughs> yes, yes. And you can bet I was dusting off that Canadian passport a couple of weeks ago. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you were, you were, you were standing by, you had both in your hands. Just in case. Oh man, COVID or not, I'm <laughs> bursting through that border. You know, all that to say, I, I love America. I am like Jakob Smirnoff. I, I love America and I'm glad to see us coming to the other side of some of our more tense times. But, yes, you know, sure. unfortunately the whole world is made of humans. So every country kind of has the same pitfalls and this, the same strengths, you know, they just go Wait. from decade to 
I have to understand this. You're saying that human beings, wait, you're blowing my mind right now. Um, uh, <laughs> what, what, I think we talked about this before, but I, can you, what is your thought? You are a uh, very funny person, but what, what is it about Canada that you guys produce so much uh, so, so many kind of legendary funny people. Is it, what, what, uh, what is it about Canada that produces so many funny people? It is a lower status. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's the thought that you're at, we're not quite England and we're not quite the United States. Is that, is that what it is? Yeah. So we can have, we can step back and have a little more perspective. We can make fun of ourselves a little better than Americans can, you know, because we're not worried about keeping our status, you know, as the superpower or the top, you know, the, the top human. Um, and as an American, I consider myself a top human. Um, but, you know, being, I think Canadians don't have to worry. Their, their big brother literally uh, is taking care of all the big bad stuff, war and what have you. And so they can, they can relax and joke about it. That is interesting. That's a really, uh, that's a really uh, interesting take. I think you're completely wrong, but I think it's an interesting. Yeah. I think status is like a really kind of fascinating. Is, is that something that, is that something that would, would honestly be something that you would hear Canadians discuss every once in a while? Is the, uh, would that act, or is it just more in the kind of, uh, uh, the zeitgeist? yeah, the zeitgeist, if you will. I think it's more in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah. I got, I, I, you know, coming from an improv background, we do a lot of work with status and status switching and scenes and how status, how important that is to comedy. And, um, and so I think uh, as a Canadian coming to America, I used to think about it quite a bit, how um, Americans were not that great at making fun of themselves. Although that's also changing. Yeah. What, what would you say kills in Canada that doesn't in the U S like in terms of, in terms of, you know, comedy or style of comedy or however you want to define it, um, or and vice versa. Is there anything that kills and just slays in the U.S. with the U.S. audiences that maybe doesn't land the same way um, with Canadian audiences? Would you say? I'd have to think about that. Um, I my gut reaction is like I think we still like verbal humor a bit more than Marka. Um, so I think that we do like a little bit more verbal sparring in our uh, like sitcoms and things like that where. Yep. Yep. Um, but I mean, it was really wild to see how well Shit's Creek did. Yes. In the States. Mm -hmm. So I think we are melding more than we realize. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just I just had the pleasure of connecting with Inns Choi, who created uh, Kim's Convenience. Oh my gosh. And um really, really, you know, awesome human being. And and um and it's been cool to see the success of that show too through net Netflix and stuff. Yeah. Um yeah. so you um talk talk a little bit about what brought you to the States. Um if I remember correctly, it was it was uh your improv team, right? Like you were that was that was a that was a part that was a big part of your journey here or um, no? 
not exactly. It was a okay. boy. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, um, uh, we're not going to say who, but it was a boy. A big swaggering American show off who is still my husband 30 years later <laughs> and is still a swaggering show off. Um, yeah, no, it, it, uh, that's what brought me to the States. He seduced you. He went to Canada and seduced you. Yeah, and he did. Convinced you to come to. Yeah, he was with a, he was with a theater company out of Florida and they came to Canada and they had to by law. Um, hire two Canadians for the run of the show and so I was one of the Canadians they hired and my husband and I fell in love over the run of that show and did, did um, you get your green card by marrying him I did were you his beard wait, 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 wait a second let's <laughs> let, wait let's get to the this is suddenly this has turned into hard news um <laughs> what's the truth no um so the so you guys fell in love and so you, you came in was that was that something that you saw yourself maybe doing at some point was to move to the U.S.? So that, that was Really? Never. Okay. No, not at all. I mean, I honestly, I love Vancouver. And our plan was to get back to Vancouver, um, make some of that cold, hard American cash, bring it on back to Vancouver. But what happened was um, we ended up forming a spinoff of the theater company he was with, we formed a spinoff of that company and ran a theater in Orlando for years. And, you know, running a theater was just a joy. It, it was, it, I can't even express how fabulous that time was. And it's where we kind of made our friends for life, you know, and then we all moved out to California together as a little troop your your theater troupe moved out yeah. together yeah and was that and, and was that your improv group yeah yeah okay and 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 i remember you um telling me the story about how because you uh your writing career kind of began with the improv but at some point you shifted to say i wanted to focus more on the writing yeah and i I started writing plays for our theater. We started as doing um, improv. I started doing improv in Vancouver and then um, with our theater company in Orlando, we um, did uh, written plays uh, and improv shows. And so then I started writing some of the plays and just kind of fell in love with that process. Um, when we moved out to California, we had a bite for a TV show. We did a pilot as a, as a group for ABC. Um, and that didn't go forward. And then it was like, well, I felt done. I felt kind of done with acting and realized I really wanted to focus on uh, writing. And luckily for me, another fellow who had been with our theater company in Orlando had moved out here before us and was already an established screenwriter. And he kind of took me under his wing. Oh, wow. Uh, when, you, when you now look back, um, what things do you take away um, from your improv career that you think re has really helped you as a writer? Because, uh, you know, I know that um, for directors, we often recommend for directors to, um, to try improv, to try acting classes, to try to help them understand how to communicate to actors and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I've certainly, I've certainly even suggested it to writers. But for you, for someone who performed at such a high level with improv and theater as a background, then shifting to writing, 
what would you say were some of the key things that you took from that that you really think has um, has helped you as a writer? Well, I think two things that are semi-interesting. Um, for for writing specifically, <clears throat> I, I it really helped my uh, dialogue for comedy, you know, because um, I was able to step into other characters and think of different voices uh, or different, you know, different uh, opinions, different points of view, status in a scene. Um, uh, it and just being quick and funny, you know, um, which was a great, uh, and I was able to read my own dialogue out loud, like in, uh, to help me to hear it. Um, it super helped me with pitching to this day. It, you know, it has made me a really good, I can pitch really well. I wouldn't even pretend to be humble about that. I'm very good at pitching a story. Um, but you know where it was a it was a little bit of a trap I had to get out of, and, um, was the the rhythm of improv is so fast and you know we just encourage so much it's like first thing that comes into your mind just blurt it out just go with it yes and yes and yes and and you can't write uh, scenes with any depth or much conflict <laughs> that way and you're just constantly ascending yourself and, and doing the first, you know, and with writing, it's like, what's, what's okay. What's one more deep. What's one more below that. What's one more level below that. Yeah. And it took, it took me a while to stop writing screenplays where every scene had a button, but <laughs> you know, and be able to extend and go into any depth with my characters really took some time. In fact, I, I that's why I stopped performing was to get out of the mm. rhythm mm. of improv Um and to be able to get into the rhythm of writing, which is different for me, I, I had to do that. Do you recommend for emerging, you know, young writers to uh, to try to try their hand at improv, to spend time with with performers and and, and actors? To, um, do you think there's a real benefit in that? Yeah, if I was king of the world, I would uh, force it. You know, it's like it would be it would definitely be part of curriculum in any kind of film school and. I, there's just there's no loss in writers getting out of their pen or their uh, computer and into the real world saying things out loud with other people and the beautiful thing about um, improv is that you surprise yourself hmm. because you're not in control like you are at your computer you're not in control of what's coming next you're vulnerable and your brain goes into survival mode it's like how am I going to survive the scene these people are looking at me it's my turn to speak whatever and you do, and you say things that surprise yourself. And it makes me think of, I used to teach quite a bit of um, improv for writing. And uh, I had a quote, I wish I'd looked it up. It's um, Henry Nguyen, but he talks about the act of writing as an act of self-discovery. Um, and if, you've already, if you already think you know what you're writing, uh, it's old. For you, it's, it's old. It's like, if you're not discovering as you go, it's also the act of coming into God, you know, it's like, then you're just like telling some story that you have false control over. Um, but I love improv as an act of discovering like your, like your real soul, like really who the quirky, quirky you is, like where you and God meet can really come out in, in, in with a good improv teacher. And it's a joy. Do you miss it? I do. I do. And so from time to time, I force my friends who have theater companies to let me get on the stage. <laughs> so 
hundred percent true. <laughs> and your original troop, like there was a, there was a, you guys were a talented little group, right? Like, like the, a lot of the people that, that were a part of your troop has, have gone on to do all kinds of other great things, right? Yes, we, we are a talented bunch and we had a great chemistry together and um, our, um, our biggest claim to fame is Wayne Brady came from our little yes, group. Yes, that's right. Yes. And he, uh, he hosts Let's Make a Deal now with Jonathan Mangum, who is part of our group. Oh, wow. And then Joel McCrary, who is the star yep. of Dwight in Shining Armor on BYU. Yep. Yep. And Matt Young, who is a writer on, he was a writer on Blindspot for the last couple of seasons. And yeah, it's just an amazing bunch of talents. That's great. Yeah. The, um, when it was around this time when you, and you talked about uh, this mentor who kind of took you under his, his wing a little bit and started helping you uh, when you first yeah. decided to be a screenwriter. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> what it was around that time when you found act one, is that right? Cause you were a part of the very first, yeah. you were a part of the inaugural, the, the inaugural class of act one in 1999. Right. That's right. And, and, and was it around that time? So had you been starting for a while or were you pretty green? Uh, well, well, both. I was already working with Carrie. Um, Carrie Kirkpatrick was my friend and mentor. Got it. Um, and uh, so we were, we had already sort of gotten together, um, and had, I had started. Uh, he he was trying to get an intern program going at DreamWorks, where he worked. To, he wrote for animation there. He had written uh, Chicken Run for them. Um, so uh, at the same time. I was, you know, <clears throat> back in the day, I was nervous. Um, they say this is particularly female, but I was nervous about calling myself a screenwriter without ever having taken a class. <laughs> um, and uh, at that same time, I've gone to see a play at the um, Actors Co-op. Yeah, Actors Co-op, yeah. And they had absconded my personal information somehow from me <laughs> and to send me. Uh, emails and I got this email about act one and I was like oh in a month-long program you know what got me the most about it was that it was uh, writers who were working it wasn't professors exactly. it was people coming off the lot and talking to you because having been in the business from an acting side I knew that things change it's like I don't want to hear from a professor who worked 10 years ago, you know, and that was really exciting to me. And, and it was great. The program was great. I, I did feel like I came out the other side really knowing the craft, which I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of one of my favorite things about Act One is I think who used I think Scott Teams or someone he talked about the it's relevant being relevant yes. is um, off, you know, we we've all known of great you know great great educational programs <laughs> around the country where you can learn learn the you know the basics of screenwriting but the relevance of someone who is who is literally when they're not teaching you in that class they just came out of a writer's room where they're breaking a story for that episode that has to air in three you know like <laughs> three weeks yeah. like, it's a, like that's that's important you know yeah it was um after act one you eventually found your way over to DreamWorks. Is that right? After a year or so, were you? Uh... Yeah, it was all around the same time. I uh, I started a, a spec at Act One, and I got some good feedback from some folks there. And so when I finished that spec, uh, spec, I gave it to Carrie and said, "Okay, this is my first 
attempt at a real screenplay. And he felt like it was good enough to take into DreamWorks as a sample, because it was a live action, but as a sample. Um, and they liked it enough to let me pitch on a uh, movie idea. Um, it was actually for the movie that ended up being called Shark Tale. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. I so I pitched to Jeffrey Katzenberg, my very first pitch in Hollywood. Um, Unbelievable. Your very first pitch was yeah. to, not, not, not to like an underling, but you no. pitched to Katzenberg. Yes. Oh yeah. It was terrifying. I just had a flop sweat the whole time. And he was so, I just appreciated getting advice from people who had literally pitched to him before. Yeah. Um, because I, I knew what to expect and they, they nailed it. I mean, he was so like, just deadpan through the whole and you know i'm used to improv i know how to get a laugh i know how to ring a moment I, and i'm doing my shtick i've got my tap shoes on and i'm getting nothing and like the sweat is just starting to beat up in all the places um <laughs> and you were by yourself like like carrie had not gone in there with you like this was you in there pitching on your own yes oh boy yeah oh boy. absolutely terrifying um, and, um, and I, I just, I, it was a terrible pitch. I went into every detail. I mean, I think I went into the production design and what they were wearing. Yeah. So I, then I just, the shark has, I don't know, the truck has, uh, the truck has a lot of teeth. I don't know if you know this, but the truck has a lot of teeth. 416 teeth. Well, I mean, in the bottom layer, the now, bottom layer. layers before he unhinges. I mean, it was just that poor man. <laughs> So um, how what was how what how did he respond? What was he like in the room for you? Deadpan. Like, I mean, I know you did deadpan, but like, how did it end? Like, like literally, you just stops talking, and he just he literally yeah. just he just spun his chair around and looked out the window. Looked <laughs> wistfully. Out the window. Um, yeah, he, uh, he he was very nice at the end. He was nice to me because Carrie had brought me in, so you know, and he was very nice to me, and he said, "Well, a lot to think about." <laughs> <laughs> a lot a lot to think about <laughs> craziest ending to this story is that i got it really yeah yeah wow. but this was back in the day when they had two or three different writers write completely different treatments on the same idea um and oh okay while i was writing my version of the treatment um, somebody else had come up with the idea that ended up being what the movie was, which was a takeoff on Get Shorty. Um, um, and it was, it was super commercial. So they would hire. So you did. You, so you got paid. Yep. yep. And two, like two other writers got paid. Yeah. All three of you were paid to write a treatment. Yeah. Um, and so the other two probably went in and pitched as well. Yeah. And wow, fascinating. But that was your first, well, that was your first like official paid gig for a studio. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. something else. Wow. So what, <clears throat> so clearly you learned to get better with pitching, <laughs> right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, um, I um edit button. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you end up working with Katzenberg, um, uh, after that too? Did you have a few more times? In you know, I got hired again. Um, I uh, after they went on a, a different way with uh, Shark Tale, but they liked what I they liked the work. 
Yeah. And um, so they brought me in to pitch on uh, other ideas that were sort of more out there that they were just kind of maybe exploring. Um, and uh, so and one, one of the things I used to talk about this a lot in my pitching classes. Uh, so I was brought in to pitch to the underlings because Katzenberg would not sit through another one of my pitches. <laughs> Um, so I was brought in to pitch to these two producers and they wanted me to pitch on two completely separate ideas on the same day, like come up with two whole cloth pitches. Um, and Katzenberg was famous back then for like literally be one word. And the words I was uh, given were kangaroo um, and gosh, no, I'm not even, I can't even, oh, circus. <laughs> so Wait a I, second. So you would be given one word? Yeah. Yes. So, so you'd be given one word. Yeah. And so then you have to come up with an entire concept yeah. based around what you have no idea what direction they want you to come in and pitch a direction yeah. to pitch a whole cloth idea. Yeah. Wow. I did not know that. And you had to do two. Yeah. Two. <laughs> come up with two completely different worlds, two whole middle beginning, middle end. Um, and of course, I thought the circus one is the strongest because it was based on Mutiny on the Bounty, like an animated Mutiny on the Bounty. Okay. Um, so, uh, but I, uh, and then the other one was Kangaroo, which I, I loved. Um, but I pitched, so I pitched the Kangaroo one first because I thought circus was stronger and it's, I needed to finish with Bang. I pitched the Kangaroo one and I could literally see them, Jimmy, like starting to yawn. <laughs> No, no, no. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have a whole other pitch. And I had the genius of the spirit in the moment. I was like, hey, before we, before I go into this next one, I'm a little thirsty. Could we get some Coca-Cola? Yeah. So we stopped. They literally brought in Coca-Cola. I waited till they had sugar in their system. And I knew I had that it would peak about I had 12 minutes for this next pitch <laughs> so they got the sugar in them I pitched them and um and I I ended up selling that pitch too which is so great. smart so smart I, the, the the it really does matter like they're human beings exactly. it really does matter when you catch them if they just came off of like if they just got yelled at by their boss and then, yeah. and then now there comes to the or they ate a big lunch or yep. it's in the middle of the day or they're, you know, they didn't sleep well. Like there's all kinds of reasons why maybe your pitch doesn't hit, doesn't land the way you think it will. And it almost has nothing to do with the quality of it as much as it, the, it's the, what they're hearing and what they're receiving sometimes. It's they're certainly, if not equal, you know, and I, what you're saying about them being human is the point. And I started to learn about the value in the small talk. Cause at first, like I was like, oh, what a small talk, who cares? This is just wasting time. It's just gonna tell you a story. You're gonna like it or you won't, but you are right. It's not that. And it's about meeting those people where they are. You know, when, <clears throat> when I did improv, especially street improv, we would talk about, you have to meet the, the audience where they're at. You can't come in with your bowling over energy. It's just going to be offensive and you're not going to connect. So you find, you, you meet them where they are and then you try to raise the energy up and bring them with you. And that's what pitching is. And it is worth it to do a little bit of small talk, um, to find out kind of where they're at, to find the personal um, in your story 
And to say that before I tell a story, now I tell why I want to write this story, what I found in this story that had connected to my life and my heart and let them see that I'm a human. Let me see the humanity in them. And then, you know, try to keep that energy up and then uh, bring that energy up and go into the story. And that was now, a turning point. Now you mentioned when you, before you went in with Katzenberg, you had spoke, you had spoken to a few people who had pitched to him to try to get an idea. Do you recommend that for anyone that you're going in to pitch to? Yeah. Do you try to do a little, a little, you know, research on them just to kind of, um, do you recommend doing whatever kind of due diligence you can before? before that meeting on who you're pitching so that maybe like these small things that you can kind of pick up on and you could, would help you with the pitch? You know, I recommend it hundred percent for all the reasons. It's just smart business, you know, to know who you're presenting to. Um, it's also, you know, especially if we are thinking of ourselves as bringing in the light, the salt and the light, a little bit of God, um, we're, uh, much more so than advancing our careers, we're connecting with other souls on the planet. Um, and it's respectful to know who they are and what they've done. Um, you know, a lot of people, when they come into the business, they think it's cool that, oh, I don't know who you are. It's like, that's not cool. <laughs> that's yeah. that no, that's not the cool. opposite of cool. <laughs> people don't like it. Mm. Um, and once you've been in the business a while, you understand how hard it is to get any movie made. And even if it's a dumb movie, you know, that was a huge hurdle and it got made and that person right. should get some respect for, you know. Um, That's right. So I 100% recommend any way that you can find out anything, but then don't assume that you know it because you might have you might have gotten some bad information or, you know, don't, don't come in because you Googled that they, you know, have 10 cats and, you know, you, you come in and uh, make some cat jokes and find out that blog was wrong or all those cats died or you know what i'm saying like yeah just um what is it what does a good what does a good meeting look like to you and what does a bad meeting look like like what are some things that based on your experience you walk away knowing it didn't land this time and here's why here's my thought why or i i slayed this time and here's why what, what were some of the responses in the room like if I'm, if I'm listening to this uh, as a writer and I, and I want to know what to anticipate in the room when I know when, it, when I'm working and when it's working and when it's not working, what are, what are some of your thoughts or tips on that? Gosh, you know, it, that's a really hard one because producers take it in differently. It's really hard. Like, like I, would, I thought that that meeting with Katzenberg was a complete bomb. And I've yeah. had that feeling after meetings. It's like, that did not go well, but it's because they're in their head and they're thinking about a lot of things that I don't know that they're thinking about other projects that they've got. Is this like something else or is whatever? Um, so it's, it's actually hard to gauge. The only thing I can gauge is if I made some kind of a human connection or not, but I can't always gauge if, um, I, I mean, cause I know that I have, slayed the storytelling and not gotten the gig. So I, I, I know that I don't know when I walk out of the room, if they're going to buy it, but right. I do know if I had a human connection. And I love, and I love that. I love the human connection because like you said, it's, it's more than just your career. It's, it's who yeah. you are as a person, hopefully how God has designed you to understand that 
that, you know, as an empathetic person trying to live your life and work in this business with these people, there is something quite beautiful to think about it in, in that way, to try to connect to someone uh, in that sense. And, 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 and also for your career, people, if they like you, you might not be right for that project, but they'll remember you and they'll bring you back to pitch on other projects or they'll introduce you to other people say, you know what, this is a, she was really good in the room. She's a really interesting person. You should talk to her, right? Like it, like it ends up paying forward in other, all other kinds of ways. Wouldn't you say? Oh my gosh. Here's my favorite story about that. Um, a, a bunch of friends uh, back in my theater days, um, one of them decided to make a pilot, a sketch, a sketch show pilot. So he got us all together. We wrote sketches. We performed sketches, filmed them. He put them together into a 20 minute presentation and it got all the way to uh, Lorne Michaels. Lorne Michaels liked the oeuvre of one of the gals who, who she, I don't think she even, I, don't, I can't remember. If, yeah, she did perform in one sketch, but she mostly just did this one bit. It was almost like a stand-up bit that she would do. It was super funny. Um, and uh, he liked her persona. So he invited her out to um, New York to meet with him um, as a writer. She wasn't a writer. She didn't write any of the sketches on the, wow. uh, you know, and she was like, I'm, I'm not a writer. He's like, no, I like you and you'll fit. And you're funny. You're naturally funny. And she was funny in the interview. She was just a funny person to chat with. And, um, he's like, no, I, I, I like your vibe. I liked your vibe on the tape. I've liked your vibe in this last hour and a half of conversation with you come and come and work on Saturday Night Live as a writer and she was there for like 20 years she became head writer you know <laughs> and that wow. you know that was because she uh in the room was herself yeah made a connection and like you say it was certainly not her resume it wasn't uh samples of writing you know it's like to the greatest challenge in life is to try to be your authentic self you know and I know act one does do they still do like the credo yeah, yeah, we do. You know, knowing yourself is the toughest, you know, uh, it's a very hard thing to do and you have to adjust it, you know, every few years as you learn more horrible truths about yourself. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is what everybody is hungry for. And certainly the entertainment industry is so hungry for authentic people. Unfortunately, uh, if you if you don't have a solid grounding, also you get eaten up. Like they eat up your authentic self and chew it up and throw it out. So I can look for the next authentic one because you're broken <laughs> in the corner. Mm. Um, but authentic with grounding, that's I mean, that's Tom Hanks, right? Yeah. That's you yeah. can last forever. Um, anyway, yada yada. Well, I think that's there's a lot of wisdom there that we could spend a long time uh, unpacking, but I think one of the biggest things you said right there was the grounding yeah. because I, because I think that we, we just forget that. Yeah. And the fact that um, likability plays a significant role in this business. Yeah. If I'm going to spend hours with someone, whether it be in a writer's room or just, you know, meetings or what have you, you're going to want to be around people that you connect with. And one of the things that people, I don't know what it is, but it just seems like a lot of people forget, you know, don't be weird. <laughs> like, like, 
you know what I'm saying? Like, don't, don't be the person that weirds people. I don't, I don't like everyone in town is weird, right? Like we're weird in a, as in a quirky way, Sure, sure. but, but don't be weird in a, like a creepy, <laughs> like, I don't want to be around you, you know? And what is that? It's inauthenticity. Yes. Or, 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 or not knowing yourself enough to be comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. There's nothing more attractive than somebody who has a right self-esteem, not too high, not too low. I yes. think there's a scripture about it. Yes. I'm sure there is somewhere, <laughs> um, but that it's so attractive to meet somebody who is okay with their flaws, you know, and comfortable with their strengths. Given our current status where people are primarily now almost exclusively, I should say, at least for the immediate near future, everything's still happening on zoom. It's happening online. Yeah. <clears throat> what is your advice for pitching on zoom, mm. uh, taking meetings on zoom? Um, is there anything that you do slightly differently than when you were in the room? Yeah. Um, and, and what, what's your advice for that? Uh, well, literally I did, I pitched, a. a I did a lot of pitches over Zoom at the start of this pandemic. Uh, the, the project hasn't sold yet. It's really good. I'm, I'm honestly surprised that it hasn't, but the pitches went great. Um, they, and here's what I did. Um, it was actually kind of fun for me to be able to, you know, if you, you can have your document at, at eye level with the camera. And so like you, it's like a newscaster, you can read your document and scroll it to, so that you keep it at eye level. And it lo really looks like you're telling them the story, but you have to practice that. I mean, you have to take that seriously and practice it like you're putting on a show. Like a, um, like, like a teleprompter, like you're creating like your own teleprompter. Like a teleprompter that yeah. you are just scrolling yourself to keep your, try to keep your eyes up here as much as you can. Eyes up here. Um, and I recorded myself doing it. Oh, okay. To, to, so you could then give yourself notes, like look Absolutely. back on it. Oh, that's smart. It's, such, it's a great tool to record yourself doing the whole thing and see what, See when you get weird, <laughs> and just stop <laughs> being weird. Why and does my Why does my left eye just keep turning <laughs> slightly? I don't understand. Yeah, you have to get used to your face, which nobody can get used to their face. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and what I would do too is because they mute themselves, so that's kind of weird. Like you, you just have to be prepared that you're not going to hear any laughs or gasps or whatever. But I would try to make make my Zoom that uh, up in the, the, you know, the little panel at the top of faces that I could see one face, like, cause my, the document covers everybody else pretty much, but that I could see one, one of the people that I was pitching to, that I could see their face in the corner and I could kind of gauge, you know, are they, are they still with me? That's really good. That's really good, Claire. And, you know, I, I will say this too, for pitching, this is one of my little secrets and I, I would do it over Zoom too, although it'd be a little more planned over Zoom, not, not quite as, but <clears throat> I would almost always, at least once in the middle of a pitch, break the pitch, get outside of the pitch for a second, keeping, keeping it relevant. Like if I'm pitching a story, um, uh, whatever the story is about, find something relevant that's happening in the news, or if it's a true story from your own life, just break the pitch for 30 seconds and say, this is actually kind of funny because it's ripped from my own life. My brother actually did this to me once. True story. Anyway, and then get back into the pitch because nobody can keep their mind, especially on Zoom. You know, it's like, give, give them a break, 
it, it gets their attention again. It's like, wait, the rhythm just changed. Oh, I'm back in it. You know. Give them a zig. Give them a zig and a zag. <laughs> Well, and the thing too, to remember, like, like we were saying, you know, earlier, they're human beings and they might have just had four of these in a row. And, and and you're exactly right. Like, it's like, you're just giving their brain just that little bit of, oh, okay, I'm I'm back in it kind of thing. And reminding them that you're a person. Yes, 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 yes. That human connection, Mm -hmm. giving them a little bit. And those are things that they remember about you, right, Claire? It's like, it's like, oh yeah, I remember she said that um, her brother, yeah. you know, that's, this is the, this is the woman that talked about her brother treating her this way. Yeah. So uh, I'm just kind of tracking along here with your career. Right. Um, your first uh, feature film credit. What was your first feature film credit? Oh, uh, Blended. Blended. Yeah. And that was a project that before it got to Adam Sandler, it, it, you, and you wrote that with a writing partner. Is that right? Yeah. The path to Blended was um, after, you know, uh, working at DreamWorks Animation with Carrie, getting some of those um, treatments sold. Um, Carrie recommended me for uh, Curious George, the animated movie. Um, and so I got hired uh, on Curious George and I worked there for a year. It, it, it was an amazing experience, you know, uh, it was my first studio film that I worked on. Um, they flew us to New York for a weekend to do a workshop with William Goldman. Um, wow. Yeah, 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 I got to work with Bill Goldman. Well. Um, yeah, well, it was really wonderful. And I, um, I can't believe that you actually have took my call after that. <laughs> right? So impressed. <laughs> yeah, I know, it was so cool. Um, and like everything, like you never know how any story is going to end. I mean, I should have absolutely uh, finished that movie and gotten a credit on it. it would, you know, that would have been my first my first movie. But uh, it it's a it's a half hour story. I I'm not sure you really want me to go into it, but it it all came crashing down. Everybody got fired. The director William Goldman, me. Wow. That were they so the, were they already in production with the animation? Oh yeah 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 yeah. We had a wow. Yeah yeah. Yeah, it was a it was a moving train, and there was a lot of panic. But I don't mind I don't mind getting fired if William Goldman's also getting fired. So, <laughs> All right. okay. I won't take that personally. We'll take that personally. That's great. So I so, met um, I met uh, another writer on that project, and we were both working on a spec that had a similar idea. So we decided to write it together, um, and that sample got us into a producer's office who was looking for a movie about. Uh, two people with kids who get married and so we brainstormed the idea for blended and um, pitched it to Warner Brothers which was actually um, a mandatory pitch because he had a first look deal the producer had a first look deal with Warner Brothers um, but they didn't make family films we didn't really expect them to make it but we happened to pitch it to an executive who had just married into a blended family like those things, right? Yeah. Can't, you don't know. Some people call it serendipity. We call it something else. But, uh, <laughs> we call cool. it serendipitous. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> With a capital S. For With a capital S, yes. Um, um, yeah. Uh, so um, we wrote it and uh, 
every year it was going to get made with different actors. It was going to be Sandra Bullock, then it was going to be Jennifer Aniston, then it was, you know, uh, and every year something stopped it from actually getting made. Um, so it wasn't till seven years later, and Ivan and I were no longer writing together, <laughs> that um, we got a call that the producer had got it into the hands of Adam and uh, he loved it and wanted to make it with Drew as their third movie in the trilogy. So can you um, take take our listeners back a little bit and kind of explain this crazy process, which isn't unusual, believe it or not, for mm -hmm. those who are listening, it isn't unusual for um, studio films for these kind of things to happen, this, this kind of timetable. So yeah. you, you, you and uh, your writing partner wrote a screenplay which was purchased, it was purchased outright by the studio? We sold the pitch. So then they paid us to write the screenplay. So you sold the, so they, that you sold the pitch and then they paid you to write the screenplay. So you were paid yeah. for your work. Yeah. And then now it was in their hands. Yeah. They owned it now. They owned it. And it yeah. took them seven years to basically package it, put it together, get someone behind it. Yeah. And, um, uh, when it got to Adam Sandler, yeah, uh, of course, you know, he's one of those, you know, few people who have that, what they call that green light um, power. Um, you, you got a phone call from him. Is that what happened? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love Adam for this. Um, you know, which was kind of funny. Uh, Ivan and I were no longer writing together, but on that day, we had one more commitment that we had to sew up on a pilot, a TV pilot that we had sold ages ago and it had this one last step. It was kind of crazy. So we were um, on a back in the day Skype before Zoom existed. We were on a Skype call when we got like, we both got a text from like friends. It's like, look at, for, look at our deadline, Hollywood. So, cause we didn't even know that Adam was gonna do it. It showed up on deadline. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's crazy. Um, so, well, it, it, well, it had been seven years. They probably lost your email. They were using your old Juno account. <laughs> Earthlink. Yeah, yeah, Earthlink. That's what it was. They were using your old Earthlink. Yeah. You? yeah. So, um, and uh, so the next day, uh, I was having coffee with a friend of mine, actually, Jonathan from Let's Make a Deal. Um, and while we were having coffee, the Adam Sandler called me just to say, hey, um, got the script, so excited, love the script. You guys have done such a great job. It's, it's fun, it's got great heart. I'm so excited to make this. I'm like, what? And he's like, and I'll also, he's like, I know the process. So he's like, I would love it if you guys would send me the first drafts, you know, that the studio rejected um, because there's always gems in those. That, and I'm like, what, I love that. And then he's like, yeah, and if you wanna come in sometime, so we went and met with him and it was just great. He was just absolutely lovely. I mean, I, I ultimately have problems with how he, with some of the choices he made. Sure. Um, but uh, yeah, but in actuality, the process was really um, fun and uh, he, was, he was good to us. And, you know, you kind of touched on something that is very much part of the life of being a screenwriter which is once the script is out of your hands, it, it's gone. Like it, it, the, the likely, it is so rare for a screenwriter to even be allowed sometimes to rewrite their own screenplay, as you know, that sometimes yeah. 
Um, and the, oh, yeah. the, the guild has had to fight for, you know, to try to create opportunities for writers to be able to be able to have polishes and, 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 re, and rewrites and stuff. But so for you, here, here's a film that you sold. It sat on, you're excited about it. Probably some point you probably stopped being excited about it. Oh yeah, some, we gave up on it. Yeah, gave sure. up on it. You moved Completely. on. Yeah. And now it comes back to life and it comes back to life in a big way. And yet changes are made that you probably wouldn't have made. And so you walk away from seeing a film that isn't completely your film. Yeah. What, what is that yeah, from a personal perspective? Like, what is that? What is that like? It's hard. It's really hard. It's a, it's such a mixed bag, you know? And I, in fact, I remember like a friend of mine who'd been in the industry a long time when he got the news, when he heard about our movie and he was like, Hey, the good news is your movie's getting uh, getting made. Bad news is it's an Adam Sandler movie now. <laughs> like, oh yeah, that's it's very weird. Like, um, they didn't want us on set either. By the way, um, they didn't want Ivan and I on set, and we forced ourselves onto the set. Um, and then they were, and then Adam was great because he saw that we we were not there to give notes. We were not there to roll our eyes or be any kind of down. You cannot have down energy on a set, especially of a comedy. And uh, yeah, again, talk about a moving train. Um, and I knew that from my days in the theater, uh, you know, if we were producing a script by somebody else, it was tough to have the writer in the audience because you're, you're very tender and you're vulnerable as you're rehearsing. And if the writer is rolling their eyes or just giving off a, a vibe that's disapproving, it's it's too hard on the actors and the director. Um, so I, I, I knew the energy to be on set as well. It's like, we are only here to be cheerleaders. It's like, it's, it's not in our control. So, um, we saw the dailies while we were there and both Ivan and I were like, well, let's get our Oscar speeches ready because come on, this is Adam Sandler's breakthrough <laughs> to the, we were doing laps. And then we saw the first, you know, uh, cut for the focus, you know, group. And we were just puddles in the corner. <laughs> like what? What was this? which is not unusual, you know, the dailies are always better than the first cut, but the direction he had gone, it really, there's like a, there's a nausea that is, uh, that is only for seeing your work uh, misinterpreted in your eyes and that there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it, it, there's like, a, there's a type of nausea. It's like, oh no, this is going into the world with my name on it, I, you yeah. know? Yeah. And I'll tell you, uh, I know you know this, but critics, not only do they not care what the actual story is, they will make up facts. So, you know, big surprise, journalists make up facts sometimes, <laughs> but they would write these reviews like, well, this script was written for Adam and they reached for all of it, you know, like they made up this whole story about how we wrote this script um, groveling to get Adam Sandler to, you know, wow. anyway, stuff like that, where you just, yeah. you got to just be able to let it go and enjoy the ride. Um, but it's, it's hard, you know, it, it's hard. And it's, it, it's the nature of this business. You know, we yeah, can yeah. say whatever we want about it and, you know, but it's the nature of this business. I, I don't uh, know if, uh, people fully realize when they say, I want to write for film and television. Yeah. I don't know 
if they fully realize what that means. And hopefully at act one, we, we drive, we pound it into them to help them understand. But, but you really, you get a shot at making the, at writing the best possible script that you can and where it goes from there. Unless you are the writer, director, producer, you have, you're independently wealthy and can put it all together yourself. You know, there are those rare occasions, right? Like I've, like I, uh, Todd Komornicki told me when he did Sully with Clint Eastwood, he did like one pass, I think on it. Cause Clint Eastwood like he shoots what he reads and it's like, I mean, it's like insane stuff like that. Right. So you hear that occasional insane story, right. But Todd can tell you many other stories where, you know, the opposite happened. Right. And and so it is, it's very rare when you get to represent, when you get your work represented maybe in the way, but that, but in a sense, excuse me, um, in a sense, I think that that's also something that's really um, uh, for someone like you, who's coming from a performance background, um, you, there's something about, Hey, I got up there. I, I, I performed and maybe this audience tonight didn't respond, but I'm getting back up on that stage tomorrow night. Right. A hundred percent. I, you know, we used to do three shows a night you know, three nights a week. So it's like, yeah, uh, and you're absolutely right. That is the uh, 100% the the attitude to have. And you have to have, if you don't have that attitude, you won't last, you won't want to do this because you certainly have more failures than you have successes. Um, and I, I grew to know how to love failure in improv and like really embrace it. And I, I encourage, I was the director of uh, improv at our theater and I it, it I always made it the goal like every night everyone has to fail at least once or they haven't tried something wow. new they haven't pushed themselves you know and because these guys were all so good and gals um I knew that that they were going to do all this great work it's like do at least one thing that's wobbly you know yeah. um so we um we embraced failure and it took me quite a while to be able to get there with writing um, the whole fail spectacularly sort of, you know, thing. And I, I actually, I feel like I'm just getting there now where it's like, okay, you know, it's like, and that's what I, I wanted to feel as at home in writing as I did at improv. Like, you know, I could hop on a stage anywhere, anytime and feel comfortable in front of a crowd without a script. I, I, to this day, you know, it's like, I love to host our right girl events because of that. It's like, I, I'm not afraid to fail in the moment because I trust myself that I'll pick up the next moment and to get there as a writer, you know, it's like, it's harder because you pour, you know, it takes a year to get a script into, you know, a reading space, but to be able to, to know that, well, if this script doesn't hit, you know, the next one will. There's a fearlessness. I think that you're describing, I think it's really good advice The the embrace the failure you know, like, uh, yeah. I think, um, how did you eventually land Smallfoot? Well, um, Ivan and I had sort of gone our, our ways. We, we, wrote, we actually got hired. We, we made good money. We wrote a lot of family films for all the studios, Disney and Paramount, and, but nobody was making them. It was kind of weird because that was just when animation was also coming up and the only family films anymore were animation. Anyway, 
Um, so we, he went off to do Broadway, to write for Broadway. And um, I sold a pitch to uh, DreamWorks live action, um, but then they weren't making that either. And I was between gigs and my friend and mentor, Carrie Kirkpatrick, the guy that first got me a job, <coughs> called and he said, can you come in for two weeks on Smallfoot? We need some fresh eyes. And that's all it was supposed to be, like two weeks. I got hired to do uh, for a two-week contract to go in and just give them some fresh eyes on the story and the characters. But I had some big ideas in, in the two weeks. Um, it ended up, I had some big ideas for the story. So the two weeks turned into six weeks, which, and then the um, other writer that was on the project, because with animation, you can sometimes have two and three writers because you're <clears throat> there's so much to do. And the other writer... Um, got another gig and he left and I ended up staying for uh, a year and a half through the end of the project and, wow. you know, helping, you know, make some big changes in the story and the main characters. And I never did get a full contract. I mean, I just got my contract renewed every two weeks. It was like the Dread Pirate Roberts. <laughs> you, you were essentially a temp. That's <laughs> true you had to go to apple one or wherever it was and get get renewed um the the uh so if i remember correctly i i don't know if i saw you in in another interview talk about this or something but part of the the big structure changes the big ideas sorry um was you wanted to address some specific themes right where there were some themes that you wanted what can you are you can you talk a little bit about that yeah well you know they had been kind of missing the boat and it was no one person's fault. There, they, there were too many chefs for sure on this project and it had been wobbling around for a while. And um, they had a bit without realizing it. And this was before hashtag me too, although all women were living hashtag me too for a long time before it became a hashtag. It, it was a bit misogynistic um, and uh like one of the kind of bigger things uh, that I did was like they <laughs> they had created this whole Yeti world without realizing it that that it had all the same rules as ours as far as men and women. It's like one of the central problems is that the stonekeeper um, had a, a son and a daughter, but and the son was an idiot and he was going to become the next stonekeeper and how that was going to affect. It's like well, why? It's like, oh, and it was a big, was going to be a big deal if the girl became the stonekeeper. It's like, why is it a big deal in a society that is not made up by white men? No offense. Um, like we can make, they, they don't have to have these preconceptions. And that kind of blew things <laughs> wide open. We're creating an imaginary Yeti world. We can come up with our own. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our own prejudices. Yes. Like, no, there must, they must have three equal yet separate branches of government. Yes, yes. <laughs> Those things are a given. Now from there, it's a crazy society. No, you guys... More imagination. It also reminds me, Jimmy, of um, one of the first specs I wrote was about a guardian, the world's worst guardian angel. <laughs> and when uh, I was uh, pitching it and somebody asked me about like the rules of the angel world and, I, and they were like, so, you know, um, but who was this angel before? And I was like, no, no, it's an angel. It's an angel. Yeah, but who were they, you know, when they were on earth? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like their angels are a whole other species, a whole other being. And they're like, that is clever. 
And I took the credit. I was like, yeah, I thought that up. That's great. That, that, now, now that is clever. Um, so, you know, you, you touch on this. So let's talk about this just a little bit, because I think that this is something we don't talk about enough. This is something that I want to do a better job of. It's something that I want Act One to do a better job of. It's something that I want the church uh, followers of Christ to do a better job of. Mm. And that is this. Part of the problem that you probably experienced right there was that most of the eyes on the project up to that point were male eyes. And they didn't even, didn't even comprehend what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, just didn't see it. Yeah. yeah, just didn't see it, right? Like they're, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, they're not sitting around twisting their, right, um, uh, their mustaches, saying we can't wait. To... It's it's the, it's a blind spot. Yes. So, what can we do? To uh, and here's where you're going to solve, you know, world hunger here. Um, but 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 in all honestly, I, I know you're also a part of that great organization, Right Girl. Yeah. There are lots of things that. Um, we can be proactive in uh, creating um, uh, projects and working on, on projects and developing projects in a way that it are, is more inclusive and that is open to that other person's perspective that we maybe are just completely blinded to. So specifically when it comes to uh, women, yeah, what is it that we can do to essentially do a better job. I, I would love for Act One alumni to be known at being better at this than anybody else. How can we do a better job of having the eyes to see what you saw when you looked at that project? Well, you know, here's a nice little bookmark. Uh, think about status. Who's got the status in the room? Why do they have the status? Um, and completely admit, all of us constantly admit that we are not getting this right and we're not gonna get it right this year or next year or the year after. Um, and that there will be lopsidedness as we move forward. Um, that it's not about it, that it's okay to hire a mediocre female writer because you'd hire a mediocre male writer. Um, it's okay. It's like to not be like, you know, we used to be told women, we, we'd be told that we had to be unstoppable and undeniable so that we could get hired, which is not fair because men don't have to be unstoppable and undeniable to get hired. They have to be good enough. But women have to be undeniable. We have to be the absolute shining star. Um, and that's any minority, you know, um, has to be the, the uh, uh, undeniable. And it's like, well, don't, you know, they don't have to be undeniable. They have to be um, available, uh, authentic, hopefully good. Um, I think it's just like have mercy on the fact that there is it, that it's inequitable and know that, you know, and I, I think about this with right girl in specifically, you know, like the girls that we're dealing with at-risk girls in Los Angeles um, are the first ones of, of their family to go to college. When they go home, 
to have a meal with their family. They're at college all day. They're working. They're expanding their mind. They're, they come home and their family are not college educated. So they're not continuing that conversation at home. They, uh, their families are wonderful and warm and beautiful, but they're not uh, up on the news and educated. Um, so those girls and those girls are not encouraged to be like that at home. So like, we don't even know as whiteies how much we get from our parents subconsciously that's, you know, and that we are encouraged to speak well and think on these things, think on higher things, think on the news, discuss and debate. <clears throat> uh, you know, we are coming in at such a level of privilege that we are unaware of. And I know that white folks right now are hating all these words like triggered and privileged, but they're all true. And I see it when I work with these girls, it's like, it's gonna take generations before you know, they're at the same level. So it's like, don't expect them to be at the same level. They're not standing on the shoulders of all these from Oxford who founded Cambridge or whatever, like you shoulders, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of strength and vulnerability and warmth and intuition but we're not standing on the shoulders of current culture, political games, you know, um, we're just learning those and it will take generations before, and that's, I'm speaking for all minorities, before we are level in the, in the boardroom, you know? Um, so don't expect minorities to have to be the undeniably best. There, that's my rant. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> that was really good. I really appreciate what you're saying. And I, um, you know, I want to do better. I, 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 I can, I can honestly say to you, I've, I've, I've talked a little bit about this before where I think <clears throat> I was probably subconsciously a, a bit chauvinistic. I, I, I don't know. If well, I, I would... was. So I'm sure you were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I, I wouldn't go around in any way, shape, or form, yeah. you know. But, but I think, and then I, and then I had my daughter, mm. and I, I have a, I have a son, and I have a daughter. Mm. So my, my son is 11, my daughter is nine, and I saw a. We were living in Florida at the time. We were, we lived in Florida for about 18 months briefly, about five years ago. And so my daughter was little, she was like three years old, four years old. And, uh, you know, the, the humidity in Florida, um, oh, yeah. uh, her hair was like, she was, she had curls, right? The cutest little thing, you know, three-year-old, four-year-old, just her head full of curls. <laughs> and, um, I saw it was, uh, believe it or not, it was a dove. I think it was like a dove commercial, like dove hair care for women. Sure, or sure. Right. And it was basically a campaign uh, saying that uh, women, women with curly hair get bullied. Women with curly hair, girls with curly hair get bullied more than other girls. Girls with curly hair get treated differently than other girls. You know, like they were always told to straighten their hair. And, and I think the campaign was like, no, you don't have to be, be yourself or whatever. Right, right, right. It, it introduced me to a world I was... I had no idea of, yeah. but the rage that filled my soul at the thought that someone would look at the curls on my daughter's head, right? Yeah. 
Yes. And it was like in that moment, it was like God's spirit spoke to me and said, well, now imagine being the, uh, the father of a, of a young black man, right. a young black boy. Now, right. now imagine being, uh, now, now imagine you being that woman, mm. you know, and, and it just, it, it hit me and it convicted yeah. me. And I, and I realized, okay, I, I've got to start to uh, rethink some things. And so uh, that's why I say to you, I, I think that uh, we want to do a better job at Act One. I, I've stated it publicly. We need to do a better job because I want to see people of faith leading these conversations, leading the change in our industry, yeah. not not the ones being drug along for whatever reason. So it's too late for that, but we yeah. can at least not slow it down at yes. this point. We're, we're not at the forefront. No, we're compassion. not. We're not. Um, but but you are Jimmy. I mean, you you have a you clearly uh, have an open heart, and I love that you had that moment. I mean, a, a lot of men wouldn't stop to have that moment, and and it's easy for us women to be frustrated because we have been the lower status. We're Canada, and we get to um, you know so uh, you know uh, we do the same within ourselves, like the bullying with curly hair. It's like we're always uh, we humans are always looking for status. I mean, that's the whole Christian message is the cross it's cruciform it's upside down the least you know it's like i god is always calling us it's like the the christ way is to be the least in the crowd with with right self-esteem not like you know false martyring but with right self-esteem to be the least among us and the church uh, is not enjoying that message or it's and it's walking into that status right now, and it will be good for it. It will be good for the church to to be disdained for a while, you know. And it'll be good to be lower status. I think that the the next, you know, however long, however many years, the battle for the soul is going to be waged between: do we want power and status, or do we want to be known by our power and status, or do we want to be known by love? We want to be known by power and status. We've made it clear over 2000 years. Yeah. We've and that's, made it clear. that's the battle. That's the battle. And that's a, that's, it's going to take us a long time. And uh, God is very patient. Uh, I really enjoy talking to you. I okay. think that you are full of, of, uh, well, you're full of it, but I also <laughs> think that you're not <laughs> no, I'm joking. No, but I think I think you are full of so much grace and wisdom and insight, and I just want people to to know you more. And I hope they um, they can follow you and on all your future projects. And I'm just so grateful to who you are and what you've been to Act One. You've been so generous to Act One over the years and coming back and teaching and offering mentorship and support. Before we go, though, I, you talked about Right Girl, and I want to make sure that people who mm -hmm. listen to this have a chance to um, to maybe support Right Girl or anyway, um, just um, what is Right Girl and, and maybe how can people connect to it if they're interested? Very easy. You can go to rightgirl.org. That is right as in W-R-I-T-E-G-I-R-L.org. And you can make a donation there, uh, you know, $10, everything helps us. Um, or you can just check out the organization, perhaps you wanna be a mentor. We pair uh, at-risk girls in Los Angeles with professional women writers. And, and, you've, and you've been a, a mentor for them for, from the beginning or? From the, from the very first meeting. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, and, and did I see on social media that uh, you, you have a proud uh, alumnus of the, of the program right now? 
right now in this moment, our uh, National Poet Laureate, Amanda Gorman, who read at the inauguration, is a Right Girl graduate. We're very that is, proud. That it, you should be proud because she was absolutely stunning. Her words were stunning and she was stunning. Yeah. Um, well, very cool. Well, can, thank you, Claire, um, for, for everything. And it, is it okay if I um, say a prayer? Uh, I like to end these by praying for my guests. Can I pray for you? That's what I came for. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> <clears throat> Our most gracious Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. Thank you for Claire. Thank you for how you have uniquely created her to be such a voice of truth, goodness, and beauty. God, thank you for crafting her with such um, uh, grace and kindness. God, I pray that uh, you would um, continue to inspire uh, Claire, that you would continue to draw her close to you, that she would um, uh, be able to continue to be an inspiration and a beacon of hope uh, to those who so desperately need it. God, I pray that you would bless her work, you'd bless her family, you'd bless her career, and uh, thank you for this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and your promises we stand. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Act One Podcast. Celebrating over 20 years as the premier training program for Christians in Hollywood, Act One is a Christian community of entertainment industry professionals who train and equip storytellers to create works of truth, goodness, and beauty. To financially support the mission of Act One or to learn more about our programs, visit us online at actoneprogram.com.